Tonight is the sixth week in our study of the attributes of God. And um, so far these attributes are numerous and we will have a couple more next week as we wrap this study up. Um, but so far we have done infinitude, immensity, eminence, transcendence, eternalness, omnipotence, holiness, perfection, goodness, mercy, justice, and grace. Next Wednesday, we'll wrap up things by covering his faithfulness and his love. And tonight, we're going to look at his omniscience, his wisdom, and his sovereignty. But before we do that, I want you just to think about all of those attributes that I just mentioned. What a remarkable God we serve. What an amazing Lord we are privileged to know that He, having no need of knowing us, has allowed us by His grace through Christ to know Him. It really is an amazing thing. And if you're ever tempted to think that you got God all figured out, just remind yourself of this study and what we've thought about each and every week in this. And be careful lest you sin, because none of us do have God all fully figured out. Early on in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author makes a statement that really does apply to this study that we've been going through in the attributes of God. And it's Ecclesiastes 1.17. It's a fascinating, just brief mention that the author uses early on in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is a fascinating read. But the author says in Ecclesiastes 1.7, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. Trying to wrap our heads around who God is is like trying to control the wind. Good luck with that, right? Just not possible. Because just when you think you've got God figured out, He moves in a different direction, like the wind does. The Apostle Paul makes a similar statement about our striving to understand who God is. When he says in Romans 11... Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. We'll come back to that verse later on in our study. But friends, as finite creatures, we are not able to fully grasp all of who God is, this side of heaven anyway. I believe it was Winston Churchill who described accurately the Western view of Russia in 1939 when he said, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And there's some of that that applies to our understanding of God. And friends, that's by design. There's a reason that you and I don't fully grasp all that God is. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 55, and let's begin there. Because I want you to see that our challenge in understanding who God is is intentional. 
That's not haphazard, and it's not something that's just unique to you if you struggle understanding who God is. Again, we as humans, this side of heaven, won't fully understand all that happens to us, and we may not even understand what God is up to in all that happens to us. We serve a holy God who is our creator, and that means we are His what? His creation, that's right. He's radically different than us. He is other than we are, and that's an understatement. And, and a helpful foundational scripture to me down through the years has been Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, which has been referred to a couple of times in, in several of these um, nights that we've looked at different attributes. But I hope you found it by now. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. God speaks himself here through the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's a powerful statement and the implications of that statement in the scriptures is huge. It means that there's an intentional gap between how God thinks and how we think. And that gap might not surprise you, but the fact that it's intentional might surprise you. But there is an intentional gap. Because God's infinite and all-knowing, and we are finite and limited in our understanding of all things, there's a gap between us and Him. And that gap is intentionally designed by a loving Father so that we might trust in Him. Bottom line. Many of you know that my wife and I have <clears throat> excuse me, two boys, and our oldest is 19. He's a sophomore in college. Well, what does that mean, David? Well, that means if you've ever had a 19-year-old, you know that they know everything. <clears throat> and he believes he knows everything. And for him specifically, that's not a new condition. That's been around for a while. But the reality is throughout his entire life, um, we as his parents have regularly had conversations with him that he can't comprehend. We've made decisions for him that he doesn't agree with or that he doesn't understand. As parents, our ways don't always make sense to him. And why is that? Is it because he's stupid? No, he's not stupid. He's a bright boy. But he's not a parent. He doesn't hold the position of authority that my wife and I hold as a parent. And he doesn't have the authority that we hold as parents. And friends, in a similar way, God's thoughts are on a higher plane than our thoughts are. His perspective is fully informed, but ours is not. His position of authority is ultimate, and ours is not. So as a result, his ways are not always comprehended by us, and that includes whatever difficulty you and I are going through at this current time in our lives. The trials that we may face, we may not understand because there's that gap between his ways and our ways, his thoughts and our thoughts.
There's a gap between what he's up to and our understanding of what he's up to. That's how this whole thing works because we are not him. And we really see that in the three attributes of God that we're going to look at tonight. And the first one that we're going to look at, I'll make, I'll make it simple for you. I didn't do any PowerPoint or slides or anything like that. Um, but the three attributes we're going to look at are really one, two, and three of the outline. And then we'll talk about several different scriptures underneath each one of those. But the first one is omniscience. Omniscience. Omni meaning what? All. Science, meaning what? Knowledge. knowledge. All knowledge. All knowing. God knows everything there is to know. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. And as you do, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been around a know-it-all? <laughs> Somebody that constantly thinks that they're an expert on everything. Particular, particularly topics that you are well informed about, but they just want to one-up you with the knowledge that they have. It's a pleasant experience, right? A know-it-all's favorite phrase is, I told you so. It's annoying. And it's exhausting to be around someone like that. But we can be tempted to sort of view the omniscience of God in a similar way. But it's radically different than a know-it-all. Because even though God knows it all, He's not a know-it-all. Psalm 147, let's look at the first 11 verses of this beautiful, beautiful psalm. Verse 1, it begins, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, and He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. So sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. First off, let me just, let's just, as you look at those 11 verses, just be overwhelmed by the beauty of how God's word describes who God is. There's, there's two specific verses that I want to call your attention to in that. First of all, verse five, take a look at it with me. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. Now, stop right there. Which attribute is he describing in verse the first part of verse 5? What? I heard it. Omnipotence. omnipotence. That's right. Look at it again. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. That's omnipotence, right? Keep going. His understanding is beyond measure. That's where we see omniscience. This is truly one of the glaring areas of difference between us and God. 
Even the know-it-all that would drive us crazy if we sat on them next to a plane, uh, I mean, sat, on, sat next to them on a plane, even that know-it-all deep down knows that they don't know it all. They're just acting out of pride, right? And, and each one of us is limited in our knowledge, and that's evident to most of us on most days. And we certainly should refrain from believing anything a self-proclaimed expert says. And we ourselves know that we're not experts on anything. On anything important, anyway. So, let's think about this for a second. Uh, Jorge, since you already mentioned something, I didn't even talk to him about this, but he's a good sport. Um, this is Jorge and his wife, Carol. And as Richard said, they, along with a bunch of other people, uh, joined uh, and became members Sunday night at a member meeting. So, Carol, I'm actually going to start with you. So, you tell me, what subject is do you think Jorge is really well informed about? How long y'all been married? 17 years. 17 years? Okay. So, Give me a subject that you know that your husband is really well informed about. Math. Math? Oh my goodness, I'm impressed. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, now, I'm not that good at math. In fact, um, I was a business finance major in college and I had to take like 16 hours of accounting. It was almost a minor in accounting. And I didn't get a D in every one of my accounting classes, but <laughs> it's close. <laughs> D is for diploma, so I didn't have to take them again. So. Um, so, brother, I have much appreciation for somebody who is well, well informed about math. So, Carol, would you, would you think that your husband is well-informed about historic Southern Baptist ecclesiology? Would you say that Jorge is well-informed about historic Southern Baptist ecclesiology? Yeah, probably not. And you would agree with that, Jorge, assessment? Okay. So, I don't know much about math, but I know a little bit about historic Southern Baptist ecclesiology. But you would admit, my brother, that you don't know everything there is to know about math, right? And I don't know everything there is to know about historic Southern Baptist ecclesiology. Even in the areas that we're informed, well-informed about, we don't know everything there is to know. And those two topics may be foreign to you, but you have an area that you are well-informed about, or areas that you're well-informed about. None of us has perfect knowledge. None of us does. Even on the subjects we might be most knowledgeable about, we don't have perfect knowledge. And that's part of the creature-creator distinction. But it is a blessing to know one who does have perfect knowledge on all things, right? God is fully informed on every single Subject that 
has ever been or will ever be. He is perfect in his understanding. He is perfect in his knowledge. But is his full understanding, is his full knowledge, him knowing all, is that designed to frustrate us? Because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm incapable of knowing everything. Um, my wife asks me questions regularly. I think that's part of a, a wife's job is to ask her husband's questions, right? Saw that growing up in my own house. My theory is I was raised by Barbara Walters and I was married Diane Sawyer. So <laughs> questions have been a part of my life forever, right? But my inability to know everything and God's ability to know everything sometimes frustrates me. Does it frustrate you? So look at verse 11 in Psalm 147. Because this is the end which God drives us to here in verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him in those who hope in His steadfast love. So is God's omniscience designed to frustrate us? No, it's not. It's designed to drive us to Him. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful balm for those whose hope is in His steadfast love. That I don't know it all and can't, but He certainly does. God's omniscient brings us hope, not despair. It brings us hope, not frustration. Think about it. God has no teachers. He cannot learn. Some of the most influential people in my life have been teachers, Bible teachers and other teachers from, from school. But God has no teachers because He cannot learn. <laughs> he has no need of learning. He already knows everything that is knowable. And if that wasn't the case, we'd be in trouble. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. If there was anything that God could learn, it would mean that God didn't know it before. If He didn't know it before, then He didn't know everything. And if He didn't know everything, He wouldn't be perfect. And if He isn't perfect, then He isn't God. <laughs> I just love that because it's spot on. I mentioned Romans 11 earlier, so let's turn there. See a little bit more of this issue of omniscience. Friends, it should be great comfort to us that God knows everything about everything all the time. <laughs> Takes the pressure off of us. Because I get frustrated just knowing some things some of the time. So where did I say? Romans 11. Yeah. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Do you see how God's knowledge reassures us of the decisions that He's made and how much 
He works in our lives. So much so that they are unsearchable. Uh, the second half of that says that they are inscrutable, meaning they can't be traced to the end. They're not fully comprehensible by us. The old uh, NASB, the old 1995 NASB is one of my favorite translations. And it renders that last phrase in verse 33 is, well, it says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Unfathomable. That's who God is. Verse 34 goes on to say, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Answer? No one. That's right. It's a rhetorical question being answered. Self-evident. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? No one. Verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, the answer? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Verse 36 is about his sovereignty. <laughs> but the rest of that is about his omniscience. And if you're here tonight and you're outside of Christ, meaning you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, then the omniscience of God means he knows why you won't believe in him. He knows your excuses. He knows the worst thing you've ever done. Even if no other human knows that. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows why you're not a Christian. And yet, He gave His one and only Son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of sinners like you and me. His omniscience reflects the fact that He is a trustworthy God. So if you're outside of Christ tonight, I, I would beg you to trust in Him by faith. He is trustworthy. His omniscience. There's much more to be said about it. But for time's sake tonight, we'll move forward to the second attribute that we're going to look at. And that's God's wisdom. Number two, if you're taking notes or outlining, number two would be God's wisdom. Not only does God know everything, but He's also wise. You ever met a highly intelligent person that is highly unwise? <laughs> ever known somebody like that? Now, the world is full of them, and evidently a lot of them live in Washington, D.C., I think. <clears throat> is this going to be on the internet, Mark? Is this, okay, sorry. Um, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. Uh, we, we did our Proverbs series over the summer. A lot about wisdom in that study. And in Proverbs 3.19, there's a simple statement that is also reflected in other places in the Bible. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the he heavens. So God's wisdom 
And again, if you watch the news regularly, you may question the wisdom of God creating the world and all that's in it. But the word of God, the testimony of the infallible word of God is that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. And by understanding, he established the heavens. This is something that is really, really important for us to grasp. Again, because we don't have omniscience, but he does, we trust in him that his reasons for creating all things in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, particularly for the redemption of those who would trust in his son one day, that all of that is worth it. That he's doing all of this for a reason. That every chaotic thing that you and I watch on the news or see happen in the area in which we live or in the nation in which we live, all of that is driving towards a wise end. A godly purpose. His purposes. Let's turn to Jeremiah 10. In Jeremiah 10, the prophet Jeremiah is contrasting the false gods and the false idols of Babylon to the true, or the one true and living God, Yahweh God. And we see some more of this wisdom of God in Jeremiah chapter 10. Go down to verse 6. Again, what is he doing here? He's contrasting the idols and the false gods of Babylon to God himself. What does he say in verse 6? There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. I just love that the word stupid is in the Bible. <laughs> Particularly about national leaders. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Apaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple and they all they are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His what? Wisdom, once again. And by His understanding stretched out the heavens. Now notice how verse 12 ends. Power, wisdom, and understanding. This is our God. Jeremiah appeals to the power of the only true God in all creation. And he argues against the false gods. And his concluding point is that the God of the universe established the world by his wisdom. Creation was accomplished by the wisdom of God. 
Have you ever thought or made the statement, I don't think that's a good idea? Ever made that or thought that? If you're married, you're, you definitely have thought that because your spouse has said something at some time and you thought, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> now, in our house, my wife uses that phrase regularly. But again, because it's a household full of boys, right? Hey, mom, watch me. I can drop this concrete block on my foot and it's fine. <laughs> to her response would be, I don't think that's a good idea. And actually, there are many things that are not a good idea. But do you realize that that, stever, that, that statement never reply, applies to God? That we can never say to God accurately, God, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I've said it in my own prayer time to the Lord. God, I see what's happening. I know what's going on, and I don't think this is a good idea. But that accusation will never apply rightly to God. Why? Because He is always wise. He is always wise in what he does and how he does it. And he's got a corner on the market in that regard. The book of Romans ends with the statement, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The only wise God, that's who we serve. See, our problem is that we're constantly trying to figure out who's wise and who's not, who we should listen to and who we shouldn't, right? I'm quite confident that when my wife and I were dating, she was certainly trying to determine if there was any wisdom in this guy that she was dating. Because wisdom is about who you listen to, right? And for the Christian, we listen to God, which means we study this word. That's how we hear from the Lord. There is way, way, way too much I heard a word from the Lord in Christian circles. Because if whatever you heard from the Lord does not align with this word, you didn't hear it from the Lord. It doesn't mean that anytime you or I feel euphoric and we feel something in our heart that's leading us, that we, be we should believe that's a wise direction. Brothers and sisters, whatever we're feeling or thinking or heard or even dreamed, if it doesn't align with this book and what God has already revealed in this book, it's not His wisdom. As Brother Chad reminded us this past Sunday, we're to think biblically, and that's to make a difference in how we process how we feel, what we experience, and how we think about things Scripture is the lens through which we do all of that. The interesting thing about the wisdom of God is that for the Christian, it actually is a matter of faith. A person who's been redeemed by Christ already knows that God is wise. We were drawn to Him initially because we understood the gravity of our own sinfulness and the perilous position we were in before His grace captured us. 
You could think of it this way, that God is wise because he is God. So the wisdom of God is sort of built into the heart of all believers. It's part of the transformational process that he does in us as he sanctifies us and shapes us and makes us more like his son Jesus. Because we recognize that we're sinners in need of a savior and we're humbly aware that our own wisdom is not reliable. You ever made a purchase that maybe not even two days went by and you regretted it? Does that happen to anybody but me? Yeah, I didn't think so. Our wisdom is fallible. God's wisdom is not. We must trust the wisdom of the one who has changed us by his grace. And all of that is a supernatural work that happens in us as we grow and follow Jesus. I think about the things that I did and the decisions that I made before I came to Christ. Wow, what a lack of wisdom in my life. But I wasn't aware that I didn't have any wisdom because God hadn't opened my eyes yet and revealed salvation to me. He hadn't opened my eyes to show me the goodness of His wisdom versus mine. A.W. Tozer gives a good definition of wisdom with the wisdom of God. He says this, It is the skill to achieve the most perfect ends by the most perfect means. The skill to achieve the most perfect ends by the most perfect means. See, God is perfect in His wisdom because He knows the end. <laughs> You'd be wise too if you knew how everything ended. And because he knows the end, he orchestrates all things with perfect precision to get to that end. You and I don't have that kind of wisdom. And that's always been the case, if you think about it. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, rebelled against God. Why did that happen? That very first sin came from an unwillingness to trust in the wisdom of God. Because in the wisdom of God, He had already told them what the parameters were. I'll put you in the garden. Have at it. Enjoy everything in this garden except one tree. And a boundary line was drawn. One tree. That's it. Enjoy everything else. But that one command, that one boundary that they couldn't cross, that one tree that they couldn't eat from, just seemed unwise. And what did they do? They bought into the lie of the enemy who tempted them with the question, did God really say? Translation, should you really trust the wisdom of God? You know, he still whispers that to God's children today. You probably have experienced it already this week where you've been tempted to doubt God and His wisdom. This whole ploy by the enemy is one of trying to entice us to believe that God is holding out on us. for us to think what's so special about him that he would get to tell us what the boundaries are in our lives. 
what we should do and not do. See, friends, when we sin, we're just like our first parents because ultimately we think we know better than God, just like they did. But we don't, and I know many of you have the scars to prove that, as do I. It's an important thing for us to remember that the wisdom of God is a good, good thing. We think our wisdom is more reliable than His, but His wisdom is more reliable than ours. The battle in your life and my life is over whose wisdom will prevail, ours or the Lord's. And there's a big difference between those two. I think we'll see this well in Psalm 18. Let's turn over to Psalm 18 with me. And I think you'll see a contrast here between our will and the Lord's will. Psalm 18, beginning in verse 25. Look at what the Word of God says. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is what? Perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. God's way is perfect. It always is. His wisdom is always good. His wisdom is always right. Even when we don't understand it. So once we've looked at God's omniscience, that He knows everything that is knowable, and we look at His wisdom, that, that perfect precision to execute His perfect ends with the perfect means, we finally we look at one that sort of encapsulate all of this, and that's God's sovereignty. That would be number three on your outline is God's sovereignty. Over the last couple of decades, I've wrestled theologically with the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> really, more than any other time in my Christian walk, I, God saved me when I was 13. I didn't think about it much until the past 20 years. And some of you know that my youngest son, who is 16, lives with a neurological disorder. Uh, we began to notice non-typical behaviors when he was two and were concerned. And when you know and love somebody that has special needs or a disability or a chronic condition, uh, you, ask God's, you ask God questions like, God, did you do this? Did you cause this? Are you really in control of all things, God? Are you paying attention to what's happening here, Lord? See, early in my ministry, even back to my seminary days, I used to think that God was sort of sovereign. <laughs> he was kind of in control of all things. But sovereignty is like pregnancy. You either are or you aren't. All right? And as I've grown in my understanding of what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty, I've realized why this is a struggle for me. Because my tendency, and probably 
you may have a similar tendency. My tendency is to give God credit for the good things that I enjoy in my life, but not the things that are unpleasant in my life. And that's a bit ridiculous for me to do that for one who is, well, omniscient, all-wise, and sovereign. <laughs> Doesn't really make any sense. So what is God's sovereignty? Well, simply it's the extent of God's rule. Uh, we've heard a lot over the past week about the sovereign. May she rest in peace. But think about that, because that, that applies here. That terminology is used as imagery throughout the Bible of a king. Think about how the word sovereign typically applies when it comes to human history and countries and nations. It's about the extent of one's rule. And it carries the idea of someone having complete authority and control. It means God's supreme over all things. He does not have to ask for permission ever. There is no authority that is higher than God. He has absolute freedom to do all that he wills to do. <clears throat> now that doesn't mean that God can do anything. <laughs> I hear lots of Christians say, well, God can do anything. That's a misnomer. God cannot do anything. For one, God cannot act contrary to his nature. He cannot sin. He cannot change. <laughs> he cannot be unjust. So it's inaccurate to say God can do anything. The Bible teaches us that God can do all that he wills to do. God can do everything consistent with his character and who he is. He sovereignly acts in accordance with who he has revealed himself to be in this word. So God is sovereign over what appears to be the most random acts in the world. When you think about it, when you, when you begin to see sovereignty in the scriptures, it's hard to stop seeing it. It's one of those things that you can't unsee once you begin to see it. Proverbs 16, 33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Some of you are familiar with that proverb. In modern language, we would, we would say the dice gets rolled on the table and every play is decided by God. Friends, God is sovereign over Las Vegas. He's sovereign over everything that happens. There are no events so small that he does not rule it for his purposes. There's a fascinating statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30, when he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So, Every roll of the dice in Las Vegas and every tiny bird that falls dead in a forest somewhere where no one's around and every diminishing hair on the top of my head are things that the Lord is sovereign over. They're all under His authority and control. It's fascinating. 
R.C. Sproul in his book, Chosen by God, makes the point that if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free from God's sovereignty, then we have absolutely no guarantee that any of the promises of God are true. It's not easy to accept the doctrine of God being sovereign over us because our desire for independence makes it difficult for us to submit to someone telling us what we should do or should not do. However, if we humble ourselves and admit our own need for salvation, we will see that our sovereign Savior is better than our own rule of our lives. We will also see that because He's sovereign and He can sustain us through any difficult circumstance that life might bring you or me. See, for Christians, I think it's easier to accept God's sovereignty when it applies to just salvation. I mean, come on, most of us would agree that we know we cannot save ourselves. We know that God must intervene in order for us to respond to the gospel. We will die in our sins unless He does. And praise God that by His grace, He does intervene and save some for His purposes. But we struggle with God's sovereignty in the more nuanced areas of life. Things like our health, parenting issues, <laughs> struggles in our marriage, natural disasters, diseases, a thousand other things. It's a challenge for us to think about how is God sovereign over those things as well. So it's important that we regularly remind ourselves that God is sovereign. Jesus is not only the Lord of our salvation, He's Lord of all. He's Lord of every area of our lives and there's great comfort in knowing that He is that. Because of who He is, the Son of God. By God's grace, my wife and I, uh, down through these, I guess, 14 years, uh, I've come to understand that our youngest son's disorder is both intended for God's glory now and will ultimately be redeemed for God's glory one day. And I know that probably some of you aren't there in your understanding or your embrace of the extent of God's sovereignty in all things. And that's okay. As I mentioned, I haven't always been there. But honestly, I still face the challenge today of not being comfortable attaching God's control over all the stuff in my life that I don't like. Experiences that are unpleasant. <laughs> Outcomes that don't make me happy. I easily do it with the opposite but I still struggle with those things. Yet when I read the scriptures, God does not defend his right to be sovereign over all things. You don't see that sort of tactical defense in the Bible. What God does in the scriptures is he declares his sovereignty and he invites people to trust him. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Moses in Exodus 4. If you remember the moment Moses truly believes that God's got the wrong guy to lead the people out of Egypt. That 
omniscient, all-wise God has got it wrong. And he's complaining about his own physical disability, which is what? If you know the story, speech, that's right. His speech. And God's response in Exodus 4.11 is, who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's not trying to make a convincing argument. He's just declaring who he is, that he's sovereign. God declares his sovereignty and he invites Moses to trust in him because he's sovereign. Also in Job 38, Job is asking God about his own suffering, which is no small thing. If you want a good read, a good study of God's sovereignty in human suffering, read the first couple of chapters of Job. It's fascinating. But in Job 38, he's asking about his own suffering. And God's response in Job 38.4 is, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Again, he's not trying to make an impressive defense of his own position as God. He's simply declaring that he is sovereign and he's inviting Job to trust in his sovereignty. And in the book of Isaiah, I see the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah saying in Isaiah 45.9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a pot shard among the pot shards on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the clay have a right to tell the potter how to make him? No. Again, God's just declaring who he is as sovereign. And he's inviting his people to trust in him. It's interesting, the sovereignty of God in the scriptures is also evident in the machinations of national and world events. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Hmm. So that means God is sovereign over those who rule and lead nations? You better believe it. That was true yesterday and it's still true today. It'll be true on election day this November and it'll be true on election day in 2024. It's true when the person you like who is in office and it's true when the person who is in office is somebody you don't like. The Apostle Paul makes the case in Romans 13 that no one is in any position of earthly authority unless the Lord allows them to be in that position of authority. Friends, the sovereignty of God extends over all things, even over a representative democracy like the United States. Daniel 4.17 makes it clear that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. He's sovereign over it all. Again, that's not by design to irritate us. If there's anybody on the planet 
that should sleep well at night, it should be those who follow Christ. Because national events and world events and election outcomes should not throw us for a loop. Because we know the one who's sovereign over all of those things. Guiding human history towards his purpose. If you've been around McGregor for a while, what do sinners deserve? Hell, that's right. Death, hell, and the judgment of God. That's what you, me, and every sinner deserves. And anything short of that is the mercy and grace of an omniscient, all-wise, sovereign God. <laughs> and that sovereign God does not owe us anything. Salvation, eternal life, heaven, all those things are a gift made possible by God's sovereignty over the most awful event in human history. I know lots of people in our church, and I know lots of awful seasons that families in our church have gone through. Been here for 20 years, been blessed to serve here that long, and I've watched families struggle and go through difficult seasons. And they can be categorized as awful. Living in a fallen world, even if we're faithful, can be awful. But even our own sin can further complicate things to make our lives really, really awful. But you know what the most awful event in human history ever was or ever will be? Not World War II. It's not the Great War. It's the cross of Christ. It's the horrendous execution of the perfect Son of God. The innocent one who had never disobeyed the law, who upheld it in every aspect. And yet he stood in the place of sinners like you and me that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free. God was sovereign over that awful event. And he's sovereign over everything else that has ever happened or ever will happen. And glory be to him that he was sovereign over that awful event because it was that awful event accomplished by our great God that made it possible for you and me to be saved. To pluck a sinner like me from the path that I was on leading to hell and destruction. It took an awful event in order to accomplish that. And God did that in Jesus, His Son. And again, if you're outside of Christ tonight, I pray that you would turn from your sin and by faith trust in Him and Him alone to save you. There's been no one else who's ever been perfect except God's Son. And this God is the God that we serve. One who is omniscient, 
one who is wise and one who is sovereign over all things. Amen.